Good morning. I'm Steve Whitmire, and you're listening to the Too Much Scrolling Podcast. I'll see you in the future. For December 21st, 2021, I'm Steve Fodor. And I'm Colonel Mustard. <laughs> and I'm Pam Fedor, not hey. wearing a mustache today. <laughs> hey, look, everyone. Pam's here, and she's not wearing a mustache. She's not, <laughs> not trying to pretend to be somebody else. Good morning, Pam. Good to see you. Hey, great to see you guys. Happy winter solstice day. Yes, indeed. It's say more exactly. light. We need more light. <laughs> it's the longest night of the year. <laughs> the longest night. It's not the shortest day anymore. Now it's the longest night. <laughs> it's a dark night, Steve. A dark a night. Dark and stormy night. I had taken a creative writing course. Film at 11. Brings us to our film at 11, our movie of the week. Uh, Chip and I both got a chance to see Spider-Man No Way Home, a movie that we cannot tell you anything about because anything I tell you about this movie would be a spoiler. I can tell you Spider-Man is in it. That's about it. Was it good, though? Is it worth seeing? First of all, it is an incredibly satisfying film. And, okay. that, and, and that's what I think what we want people to know. This was the presentation that reminded me of how exciting it was to go see movies on the opening day Agreed. because the, the movie was packed. I sat next to a guy who was, I don't know, probably in his late 50s who was there because he loved Spider-Man. I sat next to two 16-year-olds who... At the end of the movie, the guy goes, that was 10 out of 10. And, and his friend goes, no, that was 11 out of 10. So <laughs> you want to know <laughs> if it met its demographic, it's totally dead. Mm -hmm. There were so many people dressed as Spider-Man. I had Spider-Mans all over my theater. And when I went to see the Eternals, we had a good crowd, but I still had, you know, a of a theater that maybe had 200 seats, maybe we had um, 75 seats that are open. Okay, I'm in Spider-Man. I don't think there are any seats that are open. I'm in the opening presentation. People are screaming at the screen because they're like cheering on, like, you know, things happen, people appear, whatever ends up happening. They're cheering in this film. It was so much fun because it reminded you of why we like pop movies because they just hit this demographic so hard and people just want to cheer. And I had that in my theater as well. It was not as packed as yours. I chose a smaller theater to go into uh, for COVID concerns. And I stayed in my seat and I listened carefully and I laughed out loud at some of the very small details, some of the some of the real fan servicey things that were happening. And then I listened carefully and I was the only one laughing at some of those moments. And I went, oh, <laughs> maybe this fan service is built just for me or maybe everyone is just being kind or maybe everyone is is just enthralled by the movie there was not the cheers of joy at the certain moments that uh, uh i was cheering for joy but nobody else was joining me 
Well, I, I want to be clear. There are theaters that are much bigger than the theater I was in, but it was sold out. And they were showing this film every 20 minutes. Okay. So, I mean, that was not going to stop throughout the night. And when I got to the theater, I, I was blown away by, you know, where do you go now that there are no parking spaces? Yeah. Well, we, this was the film that, yeah. that really, it, it could potentially validate the reason why we need a, a theater system. When we get to the next film, we, we'll talk about one that really the demographics weren't, were hit, but certainly were not going to be measurable. Spider-Man is a billion dollar character. It's the most valuable comic book character potentially the most valuable character Disney owns right now mm -hmm. because, and I say billion dollars, that's from a, a long time ago, maybe 15 years ago when I said that. Um, it is the reason why Sony bought this character. It's the reason why Disney and Marvel made a deal with Sony to be able to use this character again. And everyone was satisfied when they left this film. And it has the uh, traditional uh, Marvel uh, ending where you get a couple of uh, uh, winks at you with a couple of scenes that uh, set up the next film. Uh, there's enough cameos in it that you go, oh, wow, that was kind of neat. There's enough things in the background. Like th there's one of these scenes at the end. They walk into a diner. MJ is there. There's somebody sitting drinking coffee in that diner, and I was trying to figure out who he was because I had I know he was somebody. Maybe he was a writer. Maybe he was an artist. He was somebody that worked on Spider-Man in the past, but I, I had no idea who this person was. Did you catch? I, this is not a spoiler. Did you catch the graffiti on the roof of the high school where the word Ditko appeared? I did not catch that, but I, it doesn't surprise me. Giving tribute to Steve Ditko, the one of the creators of this character, and the the idea of honoring the past is very much on the forefront of this film. This is a really good film. The characters are really well developed. I enjoyed this to no end. I suggest that everybody go see it, and I suggest even further that nobody read anything about it because all of those special moments, if they're ruined for you they're ruined for you well you say everyone should go see it steven mm -hmm. there's a demographic that has no interest in these type films i i think that people who have an interest in this type of film would have a great experience in it i say 70 out of 100 it certainly is the best pop movie i've seen in, in a while and it, it reminded me once again how exciting it is to go to a, an opening a premiere mm -hmm. and the holidays are here and at some point families are going to try to figure out things to do and assuming there's not going to be you know, a new COVID variant, you know, rifling through your community, you know, this would be one maybe to take the kids out to. I agree. You also got a chance to see West Side Story, the remake, the new 2021, wholly new, different way of looking at the story of West Side Story from Steven Spielberg, director. This is incredible. Now, I, I did a little research on this, and I heard basically, or read that it was based on Romeo and Juliet, which is a story that takes place in Italy. And it was written by this person named uh, Shaka Spiare. 
I think that's Italian guy. Anyway, I should probably learn more about him because that should be pretty cool. Um, he really liked Italy. He wrote a lot of stories about Italy because Italy was foreign to the English and he wanted to say, this takes place somewhere else. You've never been. You've never been to Italy. Let me explain how Italy works. And he could tell whatever story he wanted about Italy because the, the viewers had never seen Italy. Well, this uh, film has absolutely disappointed as far as box office. Mm -hmm. And part of it is the demographic that it's hitting. And the reason why um, Shaka Spiare uh, is important to know on this is Sounds Greek. Huh? <laughs> that sounds like a Greek name. I think I think he might have been Greek. He could have been Greek. See, maybe it took place in Italy, but it was written by a Greek. <laughs> See, Steve, I don't know a lot about this. Maybe we have, uh, maybe there's some courses out there I should, you know, take to learn more about this guy. But when you go into this, this story, this musical, there is a, a musical style that we don't use as much today. Mm -hmm. And so West Side Story's soundtrack is beautiful. But much like when you, when you read like a, a Shakespeare play, you come in and you start reading it or you start um, you know, reading it out loud or something or seeing a performance, it takes a few minutes for your ears to kind of like tune in to what yep. really is going on there. So the use of horns and the music and, and things of that nature, you know, I would say by the time you get through the first song, you, your ears have adjusted. It certainly is a period piece. This is something Spielberg obviously wanted to remake and this is going to win Best Picture. This is a fantastic film. I'll say 90 out of 100. Wow. It really hit the spirit of this very, very well. There is some controversy about it because this is about uh, Puerto Rico and you know, even the, the writers of the music and stuff like that said they didn't really have a lot of experience with this. There was a lot of care taken by Spielberg to honor the culture and stuff like that. But, you know, there's there's always going to be some controversy on something that was written at a, a different period. Mm -hmm. uh, there were some updates as far as who sings some songs. But, man, I you know, I can totally understand why my mother or a or, mm -hmm. um, person from that generation would go to it and basically be able to relive their youth. Spielberg captures it so well. It is a beautifully filmed movie it's got a beautiful cast it's got great singing and when it gets to disney plus because it is uh, i think disney owns this the company that released this 20th, 20th century pictures now it may find its audience because i was in a, a theater with me and i don't know maybe about less than 10 people and they were all of an older generation who were, who were there and watching this. So you can be the jet or you can be the sharks. You can be part of your, you know, your gang that you want to be, but this is a, a wonderful movie. And I think once again, it will win best picture. Pam, you got to see a time travel story from 2012. So maybe not the nostalgia of West side story or the nostalgia of Spider-Man no way home, but you saw looper this week. Wow, I really liked this. Um, I'm not quite sure how I decided to watch this. I think Netflix told me this is what you should watch. And I said, okay. But yeah, it was terrific, actually. A really cool time travel premise. And um, didn't have like didn't have the paradoxes that sometimes leave you scratching your head at the end of a time travel movie. Great cast. 
there was the creepiest kid in this movie and just like a wonderful, wonderful telekinetic kid, which is always a lot of fun. So telekinesis and time travel going back 10 years, I would recommend Looper. On well, it show. stars Mary Poppins. So, I mean, that seems like it'd be a good <laughs> <laughs> this is an all-star cast yes you're right really Jim. emily blunt is is part of the cast of looper but joseph gordon levitt really shines in this dramatic role here he was known for comedy from third rock from the sun and really i think this was really his breakout role where we went oh joseph gordon levitt can do some amazing acting and bruce willis is doing pretty well in this too this is still the era of bruce willis doing well with his acting he actually tried he actually tried in this one i i will give you i will give you uh the movies that that uh are a cop out oh sorry and was it the guy from uh who was dumb or dumber which one was it Steve? yes jeff daniels and jeff dan boy jeff daniels career has been spectacular as well his dramatic turns have been great and this is another one of those really deep the characters in looper are so believable i i believe this story could happen given the technology of time travel what would happen would there be organized crime the answer is yes whoa <laughs> said said a person that we're going to talk about in a moment so speaking of time travel good transition <laughs> the matrix resurrections is coming out this week Finally, Keanu Reeves returns as Neo and Carrie Ann Moss returns as Trinity. Mr. Anderson. Mr. Anderson. There is no uh, Hugo Weaving in this one. The, the role of Mr. Smith is taken up by Jonathan Groff. Uh, this, is, this is a reboot of sorts to The Matrix. And ironically, it could really be rebooted because it's a computer system. I, I don't really have high expectations for this, but you know, the holidays are here. Christmas day typically is a, a uh, non COVID time is a big time to go to the theater mm -hmm. and there's gotta be something for everyone. Steve, is there a comic book movie that's coming out this week? Yeah. The King's man, which is uh, the next movie in the Kingsman series is coming out. This one stars Ralph Fiennes, who is of course married to river song. So I want to watch this movie. Looks like there's going to be some Russian dancing in it, Steve. <laughs> is that, that's the highlight for you. This looks good. The, the fight scene and the guys doing Russian dancing looks pretty funny. Looks is great. It? Yeah. I, I have high expectations for the King's man. Well, Steve, I saw West Side Story. I got to meet that person named Shaka Spiari. Um, it looks like there's going to be something else by this guy. Yes, this there is another movie that is uh, based on uh, that Greek fellow Shakespeare this week. This is, uh, boy, I, am I going to say the title of this movie? Uh, it's the Scottish play is being brought to <laughs> being brought to screens this week. It's called The Tragedy of Macbeth. Denzel <gasps> Washington's going to be in it. Looks pretty good. This is Joel Cohen directing. So I have high expectations for The Tragedy of Macbeth. Steve, Denzel Washington stars in this, but you know what? He's a director too. Yeah, he's got a movie coming out called A Journal for Jordan. This is a true story of an army sergeant. Steve, does he have to bring uh, Pippin along with him? <laughs> 
Are we, what musicals are we going through now, Chip? I don't know, but they won six NBA championships. I'm just wondering if this is going to be a little more about that time. I was thinking the musical Pippin, not Scotty Pippin. No, Chip, this is Michael B. Jordan. Michael B. Jordan, not Michael A. Jordan. Which, does, by does, the way, they does made he own that the Charlotte joke. Hornets, Stan? They made that joke in Space Jam 2. My Michael B. Jordan joke, where, where Michael A. Jordan would be the prime Michael Jordan, they made that joke in Space Jam 2. <laughs> Steve, there's got to be an animated film coming out and probably with a lot of singing. Is there something coming? Yeah, the sequel to the movie Sing is coming out. It's called Sing 2. This is the family pick of the week, I think. Steve, is there a film about an NFL quarterback that's maybe been in the backlog for about two years now? They've been trying to figure out a time to release it. It looks pretty good. There is a movie about an arena football quarterback, if that will satisfy your needs. Steve, the arena football quarterback won the Super Bowl for the St. Louis Rams. But he won the arena bowl for the Iowa Barnstormers. Well, there he is. This is about Kurt Warner, about the University of Northern Iowa, interestingly enough, where a lot of um, of players who start off at big programs and maybe didn't find their starting position, they end up transferring to UNI. Um, out in waterloo iowa steve this is american underdog and uh the part of kurt warner is played by zach levi so yes they will have my money this week the arena football movie is coming to our screens there was a preview for this before spider-man and i was clapping whenever the arena football (laughs) scenes came up and everybody else was going what is he clapping about Steve was dancing, Steve, for the uh, Chicago Rush, um, which was an arena football league. Steve, there's a good chance that you got to see Kurt Warner play. I don't recall actually seeing Kurt Warner play live, but I have seen him on television because my cable provider is from Iowa, so I get all of the Iowa games on my cable provider. So I've seen Kurt Warner play. That I, I'm not going to ask too many questions about that. Steve, <laughs> if you're going to choose a type of pizza, you probably wouldn't choose this type, but they named a movie after it. Yes, the movie Licorice Pizza is coming to our theaters this week. This is Bradley Cooper, Maya Rudolph, John C. Riley, uh, John Michael Higgins, and Sean Penn. This is this looks like a really good movie. It opened in theaters weeks ago in a very limited run for consideration for awards and it's opening wide on christmas day oh there you go steve book it 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 brings us to our book it our book of the week the reason pam is here is because it is our monthly book club celebrating the holidays this week with hercule poirot's christmas it's not it's it's not hercule (laughs) the italian hercule um so yeah you guys this was so much fun for me because i read all of the hercule poirot books i think all of the agatha christie books as a teenager and I really haven't read them since. So this was very fun for me. I'll be very curious what you guys thought. 
And I never read any Agatha Christie until this story. And now I understand why, you know, it, this is a formula. This is a total formula book. And it's pretty cool. There is that. This is definitely Agatha Christie formulaic mystery, but it works so well. I enjoyed the puzzle of this. It is so, so, so similar to what we read with Sherlock Holmes from Arthur Conan Doyle, Pam. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you guys about. So obviously, Christy, the queen of mystery, was picking up a lot of the tropes from the Sherlock Holmes stories that we read. And I was kind of curious what you guys saw. Did this make you think of Holmes? It did, but it was of a different era. Mm -hmm. So the stories were just, they had a different uh, beat to them, although they had the same bones. And there was something that was very familiar with them. But, you know, once again, this was, this is one of those stories that's long enough, but not too long. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's meant to, you know, probably sat, sit down in an evening and kind of go through like you go through a movie, like um, entertain me, tickle my brain a little bit, but you know, at the end, it's going to be all familiar. I really think you're right. I think that that's what she was trying to do was give us that same type of story, a different mystery, a different puzzle, but that familiarity of this is how a mystery works. She lived at a time, the same time as Arthur Conan Doyle. For 40 years, they were both alive and writing. I'm going to also uh, suggest that I really liked her writing style a whole bunch. Today's audience may not truly appreciate it if they haven't experienced something like this. And what I mean by that is a number of years ago, I went to see Mel Torme singing in a concert. And you're going, oh, old crooner, blah, 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 blah. But you get there and you watch a master of his craft kind of performing for you. And he's got everybody in the palm of his hand as he's telling stories, singing songs. And I felt the same way when I'm reading Agatha Christie is that, oh, it's a Christie mystery. You know, it's from a different era. But when you start experiencing it, you've got a master of her craft mm-hmm. and you're going through it and the beats are all there. The, the atmosphere is all there. The characters are set up. They're, they're properly uh, brought into the story. And then you, you, it, it wraps up with a bow at the end. You go, oh, my goodness, that was that was good. Now I know where where all the tropes come or the stuff that you read in the modern world. Right. And you've seen plenty of movies that basically take this exact kind of story. So Agatha Christie was born in 1890. So three years after the first Sherlock Holmes story comes out. And she started writing in the 1920s. And so she ended up, she was you know, quite prolific. She wrote about 50 novels and over 30 of them star Hercule Poirot. Her other big character is Miss Marple. So she had these two solo detectives. And of course, one of the big differences of Poirot and Holmes is there's no Watson, right? Mm -hmm. So Hercule Poirot, he's just portrayed in the third person and you don't have someone who's constantly admiring him. So that leaves sort of leaves the reader to admire him. And, and for our middle-aged audience, that means that uh, Inspector Clouseau doesn't have to do. <laughs> okay, sure. 
<laughs> nothing like a pink panther reference right in the middle of this. <laughs> so this novel Hercule Poirot's Christmas is written in 1938 and it's the 20th of the Poirot books and so just as you said Chip she's really hit this beat right there's the rhythm of it it's all set up you know this comes from a genre and kind of develops a genre called the cozy now I feel like the word cozy is really more known in scholarly circles I don't know if that's a word you guys would use what does it mean does it mean that it's meant to sit down in your your big chair and kind of fall into the story for a few hours yeah yeah exactly and so the cozy mystery typically blood and sex are off screen so this is a little bit of an exception on that but that's all in the purpose of the mystery but generally a cozy is set in a pretty isolated setting a rural place or a country home you have a closed system with a very limited number of suspects so we don't have to worry like oh this person was you know killed on a street corner anyone could have done it like this is the country home was it a servant or was it a member of the family those are your options right and dun, dun, dun. <laughs> exactly <laughs> and the notion i love that you said sitting in the big chair right it's exactly the cozy is the kind of detective story that tries to engage you intellectually but doesn't leave you feeling that sense of existential dread that you might feel from a police procedural where you know you're reading this one story, but the police's entire life and job is just meeting more and more and more and more criminals. This has that feeling of like, there was a disruption, there was a crime, but now it's solved and we can all have turkey. So it's, you know, this is the cozy genre. It's so interesting though, because Christie, of course, is writing between the two world wars. Many of her texts are interwar and this one certainly is. And I was curious what you guys felt about the timing. Did you feel very much like this is a 1930s story or did it feel like it could have been almost any time? Yeah, this felt timeless to me. I, I felt like this could be staged at any time in history. The The costuming would change. The, the setting really wouldn't because those old houses are still those old houses. Maybe they would be more creaky 100 years on. But I think we could stage this as a 1960s, 1980s, 2021. This could happen and we would have to change very, very little of the details. I, I agree with you on that because there is a timelessness about it. The, the references of the, of the time frame are, are kind of irrelevant to the story. Mm -hmm. With one very important exception, the screaming pig. Oh my gosh, that was so weird, you guys. That wait, 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 but hold that conversation okay. for the ending. Okay. <laughs> so now Agatha Christie specifically says in the introduction to this novel, that she wrote it in response to something her brother-in-law said. And I'll quote, you complained that my murders were getting too refined, anemic, in fact. You yearned for a good violent murder with lots of blood, a murder where there was no doubt about its being murder. So this is your special story written for you. I hope it may please. So that is awesome. And you guys, there is a lot more blood in this novel than in 
any other Agatha Christie novel you will ever open. Who would have thought the old man to have had so much blood in him? It's, it's an actual quote from Macbeth that is actually in the text of this story. And that is, in fact, a clue to the murder. <laughs> this poor little old guy, and he's just covered in blood, and the room is covered in blood. What Steve, that could be like a Bruce Campbell it, uh, movie. It, yeah. it has that element, that ridiculous amount of blood, and it is pointed out so many times. She was writing this specifically for one audience, her brother-in-law, and that is abnormal for her writing to have so much blood. The word blood appears 67 times in this text. <laughs> I love it. This is what Agatha Christie is really, really, really good at, is she works within the tropes of the cozy and in fact sets a lot of those tropes that we just accept as part of this genre today. But many, many, many of her novels on the murder of Roger Ackroyd is the most famous, give you all of those tropes and then play with them in a certain way. She's, I mean, she's a brilliant writer, very creative, very, um, very effective, but she's also very, very clever, right? So mm -hmm. And this is something that you can always count on from an Agatha Christie novel, whether it's one of the many that resemble each other, or certainly with Murder on the Orient Express, There Were None, or Roger Ackroyd, something really unusual. And we've, we play with the locked room mystery trope as well here. This is a locked room mystery, and her playfulness is she actually has a character break the fourth wall and say, do you mean to tell me, Superintendent, that this is one of those damned cases you get in detective stories where a man is killed in a locked room by some apparently supernatural agency? That's hilarious that she gives us that. <laughs> And then I'll just continue that quote. A very faint smile agitated the superintendent's mustache as he replied gravely, I do not think it's quite as bad as that, sir. And so I love this that, like, don't worry, it feels like a murder mystery, but hopefully it's not. But then, of course, there's something so pleasurable about that as a reader. You're just sitting in your big comfy chair. It is. <laughs> and the mustaches. Boy, oh boy, do we get mustaches. Because Hercule Poirot is well known for having a very playful facial hair. And uh, we get a lot of conversation about mustaches from there on, huh? Well, and here's the thing. Um, yes, so Hercule Poirot, who, by the way, I feel she barely even physically described him, because now this is his 20th novel, so people are very familiar, but this is the thing that reminds me of Holmes. Now, we don't have Watson here telling us, you guys, why is Sherlock Holmes so obsessed with X, whether it's, you know, the missing barbell, or, you know, he gets obsessed with some little thing. Well, Hercule Poirot becomes totally obsessed with the mustache. And it's hilarious as you're mm -hmm. reading it. And so, like, the first time the mustache conversation happens, he's talking to the police officer who's there also investigating. He said, and there was a wistful note in his voice, it is true that your mustache is superb. Tell me, do you use for it a special pomade? Pomade? Good Lord, no. What do you use? Use? Nothing at all. It, it just grows. Poirot sighed. Now that, that is an 
awesome conversation between the detective, the consulting detective, and the police detective. Just this obsession with the mustache. And then Poirot goes off at one point into town, leaving the country home when the closed system of the mystery. And he comes back with a package and people are like, what's in the package? And then one of the women, and I'm afraid there's so many characters that I have forgotten the details, even though I read this like three days ago of who is who exactly. But one of the women says, I saw what's in the package and it's a false mustache. And so (laughs) there's just something so, and as a reader, you're like, what the heck is going on with these mustaches all over the place? And and by the way, <laughs> are we going to spoil this novel? I don't know. I think we can spoil we, a novel from 1938. <laughs> You're right. Okay, thank you, Steve. Of I course. think the window. I think the window of spoilers is is a That's very fair. short window. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. But the idea that when you're looking at a family resemblance, that you would put a fake mustache on a photograph, like it's such a weird idea. Like that's how detective that's how detective works get done. You put a false mustache on a on a portrait. Anyway, it's so delightful. And and that's what reminds me of Arthur Conan Doyle's super playful uh, sense of Sherlock Holmes. Well, you know, if there's a pandemic that ever happens uh, again, I mean, <laughs> we could go through all the Agatha Christie. Uh... Einhorn <laughs> is Finkel? Finkel is Einhorn? You what? You don't get that reference. Ace Ventura Pet Detective. Oh, there's a photograph. Yeah, for all of our young people out there who have no idea what, what he's talking about. <laughs> it's a Canadian. Jim Carrey is Canadian. Jim Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> the, the idea of differences in hairstyle, and that changes the view of the detective as to who is the suspect. This is a trope that is, is brilliantly done here. Steve, no one knows that Superman and Clark Kent are the same person. I mean, <laughs> because it's glasses. He, he wears Clark Kent wears glasses. He can't be Superman. <laughs> That's a great comparison to the. <laughs> they can't be the same person. So Agatha Christie was born in 1890. Arthur Conan Doyle died in 1930. So they were contemporaries. I don't know that they knew each other, but... Contemporaries, but different eras, man. I mean, how many 20-year-olds are you hanging out with? Right. They're 40 years apart, but they did overlap. They were both alive for a period. But, But yes, I mean, Conan Doyle is so Victorian. And Agatha Christie is so modernist. Like they really reflect the major period that they were writing. So the 1880s to 1900 for Doyle and then the 1930s to 50s for, for Christie. As they should. I mean, it, it, yeah. there, there's a timelessness to both of them, but the reality is they're, they're anchored to the area era they wrote. But in December of 1926, Agatha Christie disappeared and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle gave a spirit medium because remember he remember he really believed in mediums and seeing spirits he gave a spirit medium one of Christie's gloves to try to help find Agatha Christie Agatha Christie 
still to this day, we don't know what happened to her. She was found 10 days later, despite the extensive manhunt. Really? Is that, is he that never how... told anyone like she never, never revealed where she never. was for those 10 days or who that person was she was with? Uh, yeah. Who is the right answer, Chip? Because <laughs> there is a very good Doctor Who episode where the doctor picks up Agatha Christie and accidentally sets her back on Earth 10 days later uh, because he had con- he, he set the controls wrong. That's all. That's all it was. He, she was just away with the doctor. With the doctor, as one does. <laughs> but I bet she loved, I bet, she, like, whatever happened, I have no idea. Nobody really does. I mean, there are many theories out there, but I mean, that mysteriousness around the author is kind of great too. It, it makes for great storytelling in and of itself. That that metafiction of the mystery writer who is enthralled in a mystery. It's like murder, she wrote. Yes. And you guys, if you do read other Agatha Christie books, this notion of breaking the fourth wall, it happens in all of her novels. So in pretty much every novel, there comes a moment where the detective says, oh boy, are we in a detective story? (laughs) Like that is (laughs) just part of the drill. Now, one thing that's, that really does set the time for this between Holmes and Poirot is the prevalence of psychology in Poirot's approach. So in many ways, they have the same approach. Poirot spends a lot of time just sitting and thinking about things, but he's also really, really interested in psychology. Also, Poirot is the kind of very unprepossessing little man, little middle-aged man that people come and tell him stuff. Hmm. So this happens a lot, and especially women. And I don't know if you noticed that Poirot really thinks of women's behavior and men's behavior as totally different from one another. It's like one's from Mars and the other's from Venus. (laughs) Give us the one with the monsters, Chip. (laughs) I was thinking that exact thing. But um, he explains that he is a kind of father confessor and women go to confession much more often than men. And we see this in this story, which has all of these sons, right? So this little old man gets killed and you can see he's the victim, like right from page one, right? The little old man who says, I'll be changing my will is of course killed the day before he changes his will. I don't get it. How did that happen? Right. <laughs> so, Here's your first rule. Don't change your will at that age. Don't if you're gonna don't change your will, it. don't yeah. announce it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. so but it's interesting that so there's these four sons and three of them are married, and all of the women at some point or another seek out Poirot and say, Okay, let me tell you something that you didn't that, that I don't want, don't tell the police. I wouldn't tell the police this, but you little Mr. Famous consulting detective, I would like to share this. And I know you won't tell a soul. Does he and have piercing so, blue eyes? I know. <laughs> <laughs> the mustache. It's the mustache. <laughs> it's the mustache. Yes. Now, interestingly, Poirot believes that some people are more inclined to murder than others. And he, like, this is a psychology thing. Whereas like, for Holmes, every person is a potential murderer, right? The right situation, the right anger, mm-hmm. you know, leads to the right uh, result. And Poirot is is more focused. 
and he's doing more of a psychological analysis. And so, and it's interesting because so are all of the characters. And this is really, we're now 50 years past Freud, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, Freud is still very new um, when, I mean, really happening at the very end of the Victorian period. So and so a now, lot of analysis of family and especially yes, mothers in this one, huh? Well, and fathers too, like David's wife says that David is now a mental cripple because he saw his mother die and blamed his father for it. I mean, that's a very, very Freudian Freudian. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And therefore David is, is or is not capable of murder, right? Like you have to, this is, it sort of asks you as the reader to do these analyses alongside. To jump to conclusions. Right. (laughs) And she sews that that idea in the reader so well. I did not know who was going to be the the murderer in this story until she showed her hand and told me who the murderer was. I was trying to figure this out, puzzle it out, and I, I didn't get it until she was willing to reveal it to us. And... That great reveal scene is what Agatha Christie is so good at. And again, I don't, having, depending how many of these books you've read, you have different expectations or how many of these movies you've seen, right? It was Palpatine. (laughs) It it just happened to show up in the third third (laughs) arc. Oh, by the way, Palpatine's in the basement. (laughs) Great movie. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) that's awesome (laughs) but it is really interesting that this is Hercule Poirot's Christmas and so this is a book that a lot of people read to celebrate the season as we did now guys to what degree did this feel like a Christmas story there was a homecoming Uh right yeah the the son comes home the, the dishonored son comes home And the reason for that is this winter celebration, this Christmas, this time of uh, darkness, you know, happy uh, winter solstice, everyone. This time (laughs) of darkness, when we come together to celebrate and to look forward to the future and, and, and bury some of those hatchets. And that's very Christmassy of this. Did you say bury the hatchet? Yeah, there's a lot of blood. There's a lot of blood (laughs) to burying a hatchet sometimes, huh? Well, it depends where you bury it, friends. But um, (laughs) this idea of like the whole family coming together, you see people coming on trains, and then the awkwardness of it, right? Oh, boy, these two brothers haven't spoken in years, this is going to be the first time we meet the wife and like, and oh, you know, the the Spanish niece of the sister who died, like, there's just all of that homecoming. I mean, this is the start of every Christmas Hallmark movie. Right. See, this this is how you create the game Clue. Right? Exactly. <laughs> yes. Like, we're going to have this random group of people that kind of have a connection, and this random guy from South Africa thrown into the mix as well. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Who's one of the first people we meet, and it's fun because we see many of the characters in their own homes traveling, again like a Hallmark movie, and then the you know the bulk of the action takes place at this isolated country home now i love poirot's quote about the season he says there is at christmas time a great deal of hypocrisy 
honorable hypocrisy. Hypocrisy undertaken pour le bon motif, c'est entendu. But nonetheless, hypocrisy. So hypocrisy for the right reason. No was doubt. that Spanish? Was that Spanish? <laughs> it was French. Paul okay. is Belgium. So he's <laughs> he throws in the French all the time. Le bon Belgium, motif. man. Belgium. No. So um, so yeah, so he's like. You know, this hypocrisy, it's coming from a good place of people trying to get along with their families, but no one can really be themselves when they're with their extended family, especially when you have the kind of fortune that's, you know, problematically separated. You've got the prodigal son, the good son who stayed home, the artist son, and then the sun from the wrong side of the sheets, so they say. I love that expression. And you guys, that's a French expression the wrong okay, side okay. of the sheets yeah and so i love that agatha christie uses that and this isn't the only novel that she uses it in so and we have this sense that old simeon he would always it, it, they say at a certain point um you know he would always provide money to any women that he had knocked up and since it's the 30s that doesn't mean for an abortion it means providing 18 years worth of secret support. Wow. Well, you, you never know what Father's Day will provide. <laughs> so, but that's mentioned several times. So you kind of know there has to be an illegitimate child out there. Mm-hmm. I think you're, I was thinking it was Stephen Grant <laughs> the whole time, right? right? <laughs> how about how damning the father was to like the, the sons who are basically living off their allowances? Mm-hmm. There's, there's a lot of messaging in this about finance and about how uh, the rich may not uh, be willing to share their wealth with their children or their children might not be willing to go out and work for their wealth. Well, I, I would say they're not willing, not willing to work for their wealth because the man could support all of them. There, mm-hmm. There's the first thing. He had enough wealth, but the uh, many of them chose not to do much. And then one of them is a politician. Which, Which is, is the slimiest of, of all. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I know. Probably an attorney, too. Uh. <laughs> Father made me a small loan of a million dollars. But it's interesting that, like, this is Agatha Christie's blood novel, which she, you know, plays with that quote from Macbeth, or who would have thought there was so much blood in him. But it's funny when the body, it is described with much more detail than usual. So often in an Agatha Christie novel, someone comes and says, oh, there's been a murder and it was by, and then they tell you the means, just like a clue, it was by poison, by stabbing, by whatever, by gunshot. And that's it. You Mm -hmm. never see anything more. But this one, the discussion is pretty brief. And I thought it was interesting that when the, the body is described, the throat is slit. And because it's a locked room, the police officer says, he couldn't have done it himself. And you're like, that is a terrible way, slitting your throat and there's no weapon. And so you think at the beginning that they're going to do a bit of a bumbling police officer business. And then she doesn't go there. So she raises that as a possibility, but then the police are perfectly competent. So the genre had been established. Uh You're 50 50 years after Holmes. And so what you're doing is you're, you know, 
that's the, that's the whole point. You're throwing up all sorts of little uh, hints exactly. to, pl to play with the reader. The reader knows what that uh, at some point is going to have to be solved. And that's why it's a cozy, right? Because mm -hmm. you can have all this fun, but in the end, there is a solution. Now, I really like that multiple times people say, oh, such a bloody crime. It's so un-English. And that's partly why they suspect the Spanish niece, because <laughs> she's the kind of person from Spain. Oh, the warm know. weather blood. You know, right? Those Spanish women. <laughs> Back to Holmes for a second. He's a romantic too, right? Because he speaks the romance languages. <laughs> Back to Holmes for a second. We had quite a few Spanish women of oh, yes. very fiery blood. That was a trope. Oh, they're passionate, those Spanish women, as we will recall. Now, there's an awesome quote when Poirot's doing the big reveal. And you guys, how much fun is the big reveal scene? You get all the suspects in a room, and then you basically say, well, it seems like it could be Steve. And then Steve has to sit there with, like, you know, schooling his face. And here's why it could be Steve. But then I thought, maybe it's chip and then we all look at chip like he goes around and tells you why it could have been every damn person in the room uh -huh. and of course as the reader like the first time you read one you're like oh my god it's steve and then you're like oh it's not steve oh my god it's chip. but you know once you've read a few of these you know that you're basically eliminating right so as soon as you turn attention on someone you're eliminating that character from the suspect pool but she does that so well that scene that puzzle piece being put into place and we all get to experience it and again that fourth wall breaking where the one character says it's like a puzzle being put together where you thought you couldn't figure it out and then she shows you this the truth and you go yes that has to be right right and in the 30s, we have this very strict rule for detective fiction called fair play, which is that the detective author must provide all of the clues so that an astute reader would have all of the clues available. Mm -hmm. Now, by today, we don't really follow that. And sometimes you read detective stories where there's no way that you could have solved it. But well, sometimes Palpatine just gets thrown in at the end. I, exactly. I, I don't like those. I don't like those where the uh, I couldn't have solved it. <laughs> that, my friend, is because you like the idea of order and resolution. And you have this desire, which maybe we all do, to live in an orderly and sensible world, which we don't. And so when you read a novel where you couldn't have solved it, you're like, come on, because it's a reminder that we live in a world of chaos. <laughs> so it's not cozy. It's not nice. <laughs> so there comes this moment in the great reveal scene where Poirot brings up blood and he says he's explaining his deductions blood so much blood blood everywhere and insistence on blood fresh wet gleaming blood so much blood too much blood and a second thought comes with that this is a crime of blood it is in the blood it is simeon lee's own blood that rises up against him and so he's talking about blood as both like the gore of it but also the kinship, this notion of family ties. And so it has to be one of the family. And there's always the question, and Christy, did the butler do it? <laughs> Was it a servant or a family member? And uh -huh. it's 
always a family member <laughs> like that. You know, that is real. I shouldn't say always, but it's very, very much. She's very interested in that psychology of families. So you guys, did you like the solution? Did you like the illegitimate brother? Unbelievable. I, I loved it. I loved that moment, that whole chapter where she's putting it out there. And, and then we reveal that it's the character that I knew it was going to be one of the characters, but I honestly did not suspect the illegitimate brother who was there the whole time with a mustache. The perfect mustache. It's the mustache. Incredible. <laughs> I must ask you a question. Now, I loved that hilarious description of how he did it. And whenever, again, if you've read a lot of these books, whenever there's a very specific time that something happened, it's never really, that's always the wrong time. There's always been an elaborate setup to make it seem like it's that time. And then it was really another time. And Poirot hints at that many times, like this little old man, who the heck killed this little old man and, you know, turned over all the furniture and made this ginormous ruckus, you just slit a little old man's throat and he dies. Like he's, he's just a little guy. And so we know, I think, like, I didn't know who did it, but I knew that it wasn't done at the time that, that everyone was looking for alibis. And so wasn't that so funny when the clue is this little piece of rubber? And Poirot says, you know, those dying pigs that are sold at fairs. <laughs> like what? This is the one thing that I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about in 1938. But that was a thing that was, <laughs> a, according to my very important research, that was a thing in 1938. There were these, these balloons that screamed like a dying pig <laughs> and they were apparently very popular. The children love to make noise. Give it, give it child. You know what you do? You, you find your niece and nephew and you give them the noisiest toy you can for Christmas. They will love you forever. I am not speaking from actual experience. <laughs> and I mean, well, the like holidays are coming up, Steve. You can always give a drum kit. And I should also <laughs> mention that the drum kit doesn't work. There's also a baker's dozen of kittens you could bring. Um, I lean more toward the accordion as a gift, just so you know. Uh, there are accordions uh, across the, the the area that were given by Crazy Uncle Steve, just so you know. A fine, fine gift indeed. So <laughs> the noisiest toys possible. Yeah, the dying pig. That's uh, hilarious. Before that reveal, before that, there's this whole scene where they're playing with balloons. And I'm like, what is this scene? Why are they so enthralled by these balloons? Are they Bill Clinton? Uh, but then <laughs> then it became a, it became a thing. I, I got it after that. <laughs> so guys, pretty fun book, right? Yes, this was a great choice. I think this is a good story for those people who love puzzles, who love mysteries. Who, those of those of our listeners who listen to us throughout all of the Arthur Conan Doyle conversation, Agatha Christie is definitely the successor to those stories. Well, you know, it's it's a lot um, lot better than Charles Dickens. <laughs> Remember when we tried to read Charles Dickens <laughs> for Christmas last year and we didn't even get through to the fifth story because the, the other stories were not, not there for us. <laughs> yeah, this is very, very reliable fun. Absolutely. 
That's great. And Pam, thank you so much for joining us every month. We look forward to 2022, where hopefully you'll continue to want to talk to us once a month and, and continue our book club. I, I hope everybody out there is reading along with us. This was a fun story. I look forward to February of 2022 when the next Agatha Christie movie comes out. That's Death on the Nile with Kenneth Branagh playing Poirot again. I look forward awesome. to that. Yes, those movies are very good. Yeah. So that's Hercule Poirot's Christmas, uh, 1938 by Agatha Christie. Scroll with it. Brings us to our scroll with it. What's what's uh, what's going on this week, Chip? I've been in school. It has been a long week of school. I, I'm in holiday mode now, so I've not been watching the news. What's going on? Well, uh, Steve, uh, we just read an Agatha Christie uh, novel with a lot of blood. <laughs> no, no. The streets of Chicago, Steve, there's a lot of blood on them. Yeah. And basically, uh, there was a robbery this week at one of the car dealerships. And the, the owner of the dealership was interviewed by a number of the television networks, certainly the, the newspapers, too. And he basically said enough is enough. And what it looks like is that Chicago, along with many other areas of, of the nation, you know, there's just robbery basically coming in in broad daylight, destroying property. And uh, it really is undermining the, the the cities right now. And certainly there's some protests going on along with that. But as the uh, Perillo said, he's the owner of the dealership said, enough is enough. We, we cannot run businesses when everything is in anarchy uh, status. And um, he goes, we got these thugs going around here and we've got to, we got to do something. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is a breaking point. I, I don't think the Chicago mayor is going to survive this one. Chicago is in a crisis of crime. It has been for a long time. I, Pam, are you aware of Chicago as a crime ridden city? It, it does get covered that way on the national news. Yeah. And, and you can think about the same thing going on in San Francisco and a number of other areas, too. So my, my point being is that Chicago is a beautiful city, certainly has so much to offer. But what's happening there, um, the crime reputation that it has, is forcing businesses to look elsewhere. And certainly it's driving residents away. Illinois is, is one of the states that's losing population. And this is part of the reason why. Yeah, enough is enough. That's uh, it's a common phrase, but it, it carries a lot of weight here. Well, Steve, you know, Christmas is around here, and that means the end of the year is coming up. Is there anything we need to tell our listeners? Yeah, it is the end of 2021. We have a tradition around here for the end of 2021. We want to hear from you. We would love to hear what your favorite things of 2021 were. What was your favorite movie? What was your favorite book that you read? And what was the best story, the best thing that happened to you in 2021? So when they mention West Side Story, do they have to watch it? I would say in order to qualify as your favorite thing, you will have had to experience the thing. Do they have to scream about Maria? I once knew a girl named Maria. No, that's a, that's a different musical. Wrong show. <laughs> we would love to hear from you. We are going to tabulate these and talk about them next week. Our final show of 2021 going into uh, a new year and a new hope. 
Well, you know, I'll I'll show up wearing a diaper, Steve. <laughs> Other traditions include chip in a diaper. I'm so sorry I won't be here to actually record the show, but I'll look forward to it. Somebody's going to have to be Baby New Year, and I, just, I I I get to be that guy. I'm just glad it's just an audio presentation. <laughs> <laughs> but in your mind, it's all there. Oh boy, thanks. Oh, thank you, Chip. Pam, thank you so much for joining us for another year of all these great conversations, our, our great book club. I, I love that you come in and give us so much knowledge. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This has been so much fun. We've read some cool things this year. Very cool things. I don't know, Chip. I think we have enough information to survive another week. What do you think? Only if we can come back next week, Steve. Yes, sir. We would love to hear from you. Give us a call or a text. Our phone number is 805-4104-TMS. Our website is toomuchscrolling.com. Our email is toomuchscrolling at gmail.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We're on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and YouTube. And you can always ask your smart speaker to play the latest episode of Too Much Scrolling. I want to thank you again for listening to Too Much Scrolling. I'm Steve Fodor. And I'm Colonel Mustard. And I'm Pam Vador. In the library, Steve, with a hatchet. It's supposed to be a candlestick. <laughs> <laughs> this is Agatha Christie. We don't hold that. <laughs>